like we've been here before and we were able to overcome previously. So there's no reason why we can't learn from the lessons of the past to muster up a more faithful witness to overcome the challenges that we're confronted with right now. Welcome to the Theology Lab podcast. I'm Scott Rice, one of the hosts. This is the second session in our series on American evangelicalism. In this episode, we welcome Reverend Dominique Gilliard, Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church, and historian Dr. Kurt Peterson. Dominique and Kurt continue with a theme that looks at the American evangelical movement from the covenant tradition. I give some context for this perspective of the covenant in the introduction to the first episode. I found this conversation to help in reflecting on what kind of unity do we have and what kind of unity are we looking for in church communities. As Dominique says in this session, there are intriguing ways that the covenant has had unity in the midst of diversity and not despite that diversity. How does that compare to the scene of contemporary evangelicalism? Diversity like this is, of course, not easy. It's certainly not always comfortable. It makes us look for places and people in the past who have modeled this for us, precedents for what a unique kind of unity in Christ might look like today. Kurt and Dominique also get into racial justice, what it means to confess Christ in community, and what gives them hope for the church today. As always, you can learn more about Theology Lab at highrock.org slash theologylab, or email me, scott, at theologylab at highrock.org. I hope you enjoy the episode. Kurt, where are you in the covenant, and how do you situate yourself to evangelicalism? Okay, great. Thank you for the opportunity to start the conversation. For me, uh, I no longer use the word evangelical to describe myself, uh, and that's for a very specific series of reasons that we can talk about tonight. Um, my uh, sort of white middle-class evangelical bona fides are about as good as you can find. Uh, I, uh, I, I grew up uh, in a Baptist church in Oklahoma City. I went to Wheaton. I did an MDiv at Gordon-Conwell. Uh, I did a doctoral degree with George Marsden, who's probably the leading scholar of American evangelicalism in the country, and I taught at a Christian college for almost 15 years. So, so uh, I, I, I was smack dab in the middle of the movement, uh, and I'm coming to grips with the fact uh, in very, very difficult and challenging ways that um, the, the tradition, the small t tradition uh, that, that led to new life in Christ for me has also in its social and cultural aspects uh, authored and contributed to the most destructive, divisive elements in our culture today. Uh, namely things like vicious racism and rampant misogyny and uh, unchecked nationalism and, and individualism and the worship of wealth and all of those things that have, uh, they're, no, they're not at the edges of the tradition I grew up in, they're right smack dab in the middle of it. And I'm trying to understand that and, uh, and, and understand just exactly how my own church tradition and history uh, relates to so many of the issues that we're struggling with today. So uh, I'm a Christ follower. Uh, I, I have a strong and vibrant faith, but I'm having trouble with the church. Reverend Dominique, where are you in the covenant? Uh, how do you situate yourself to evangelicalism? Yes. Yeah, so oh, for me... Um... Evangelicalism or evangelicalism, the root is the belief that 
we have a responsibility to share the good news. Um, and so for me, that's the foundational premise that I operate on when I think about my uh, relationship with Christ, um, that my individual relationship is so transformative that I want to share the good news of what life in Christ could mean for others and to invite them to participate uh, in new life in Christ through the body of Christ. Um, beyond that, I have not much concern about evangelicalism um, because it's become a political, cultural, um, social movement that in many ways, uh, it's most robust in, um, explicit articulations uh, juxtapose so many truths of scripture that I really am not that concerned. That said, I think part of the reason why I've contended for the term or have stuck within the family for so long is that it means something very different to be a BIPOC, a Black Indigenous person of color, evangelical than it has historically to me, a white evangelical. And I don't think that the the majority culture gets to colonize evangelicalism and define what it is when there's always been these alternative expressions, uh, these remnant manifestations. And so for me, um, I look at folks like the poster child, somebody like Dr. King, wasn't an evangelical in many consensus, but from this, this foundational premise for me, understanding that life in Christ is so profound and transformative that you have a responsibility to share it, not just live it, but live it and share it and proclaim it and invite others into it. Um, that's been kind of the roadmap for me for grounding me within evangelicalism. And for me, I am a third generation covenanter. So it's also um, something that is retained uh, within our uh, family as well. I would just uh, to chime in real quickly, just to sort of throw in the other side of it. The, the, the only uh, Christian organizational bona fides I have stronger than evangelical are covenant, right? So all four of my grandparents immigrated from Sweden. My grandparents uh, were uh, members of the Covenant Church in Cambridge. Uh, it's now, I think, a Southern Baptist church. At least it was a few years ago. My dad helped nail in the roof at the Trinity Covenant Church in Lexington, Mass. Uh, that's the church I was born into. And uh, so uh, I've been a covenanter uh, longer than I've been alive uh, in terms of uh, my relationship to the church. Thanks for those responses. I appreciate that. We're gonna be looking at evangelicalism from a few different perspectives here. To get us started, I wonder if there are ways that you see how evangelicalism has been a collective or communal movement in a positive way or with a positive impact. So I'll say for the positive, there's always two sides of every coin, but for the positive um, element of it, I think evangelicals have tried to take seriously the fact that our faith is not supposed to be a privatized, personalized faith that doesn't inform how we live and engage in the world and the things that we strive for um, in our communities, both our communities of faith, but our broader communities. Um, I would also say that, again, evangelicals have really understood that if the gospel is so transformative, that it's good news that we can't retain to ourselves, but it is intended to be shared and proclaimed and invite others to live on mission with us. Um, I'd say uh, 
there have been some healthy expressions of really trying to um, understand how the church really is supposed to be a tangible expression of God's love in the world. And so I think particularly evangelicals have done a great job of really trying to take seriously like a call to uh, global missions. Um, I think, you know, there's been problematic elements to it, but the understanding of that we can't just be concerned about what's happening within our national borders, but the love of Christ commissions us to care uh, and be engaged with the broader realities of our global world um, have been some things that I'd say would be good, positive hallmarks. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, ne ne never trust anybody who sees any historical movement or tradition as all good or all bad. Uh, it's, it's never that way. Uh, there's always good and bad in everything. Um, uh, if you look at the second half of the 20th century, uh, there's all sorts of efforts made to define evangelicalism. I think George Marston had the best one. Anybody who likes Billy Graham uh, uh, was essentially the way that, that that he defined the term. And 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 that means, right, at least for me, um, that uh, there's an emphasis on being born again. There's an emphasis on conversion, uh, that the love of Christ is compelling and you give your life to Christ and make it the key priority in your life. There is an important commitment to discipleship and, and ongoing education and transformation. Um, and uh, <clears throat> there's a series of books um, uh, a historian um, wrote uh, in, the, in the 1970s uh, called Discovering an Evangelical Heritage. Don Dayton is his name. And what you realize is that, you know, within the evangelical tradition, there's all sorts of people who uh, maybe they clung to the edge of the tradition, uh, but certainly they were evangelical in the way they think about it. Jonathan Blanchard, founder of Wheaton, was a radical abolitionist. Um, uh, the founder of uh, the co-founder uh, of, of the Salvation Army was a radical feminist. Um, uh, Theodore Dwight Weld uh, in New England was a was a was a very committed abolitionist leader in the in the in the 19th century. So so there's all sorts of uh, not only commitment to conversion and individualism, but to making the world around you better. Um, uh, we we all experienced something a little bit later in the 19th century. Uh, that we could talk about another day, uh, uh, where where evangelicalism tended to become me and Jesus instead of me and Jesus in the whole world. Uh, and that radical individual turn where uh, all God cared about was, you know, that we don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. Uh, when, when that happened, uh, I think we lost a big element of what it meant to truly be a Christian person. I just also just would like to offer up, you know, from our own covenant tradition, uh, one of the ways we saw a collective identity is for um, us being an immigrant denomination uh, coming from Sweden and coming here with the missional purpose of really walking alongside of uh, the foreigner amongst us, uh, immigrant neighbors who are coming in um, to the U.S. trying to establish a new life and get along. And we understood that as a tangible manifestation of our new life in Christ and commitment to uh, loving our neighbor. Um, and it's, it was something that fostered a collective identity that um, has waned over time, um, but it, it, it was a guiding light for us for a number of years and really was a distinctive about our expression of evangelicalism. 
All right, so now let's go to this question and I'm gonna open it up again to either one of you wants to lead us with it. How has this sense of like being connected, uh, collective identity been challenged within evangelicalism? Yeah, I, I can start with the covenant and kind of go broader. Um, yeah. I think in a similar way when we talk about um, us as mission friends um, in our orientation of walking alongside our, our immigrant neighbors, um, as those immigrant neighbors were not just Swedish in orientation and ethnic identity, uh, it became more challenging to live into that commitment. Um, as our covenant churches, particularly in urban spaces, uh, were confronted with the reality of diversification um, and particularly the great migration uh, from the South to the North, and more of our neighbors look like me and uh, other uh, pigmented people, uh, the commitment to faithfully love our neighbor uh, waned and watered down. And there were real questions uh, in many covenant churches about, is our mission to be uh, mission friends to Swedish immigrants, or are we supposed to kind of take on the Jeremiah orientation and really seeking the peace and the prosperity of the cities that God has called us to? Uh, do we participate in white flight like so many people around us or do we bear a distinctive witness? Do we see racism as a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ and something that has established a foothold that we refuse to abide by and we want to weed out? Um, in the example of a covenant minister in Chicago by the name of Doug Cedarleaf, who bore this prophetic example of what it meant for a white minister in a uh, diversifying space to respond to a vicious act of racism when one of his congregants had uh, a cross burnt on his lawn. Uh, instead of shrinking away from that, um, Cedar Leaf mobilized his congregation to actively engage it, denounce it, and to proclaim that their church was gonna be a church that was radically inclusive and countercultural in its commitment to this mosaic nature of the body of Christ that we so oftentimes talk about today. But there were also tons of example covenant churches who refused uh, to participate in the mission of God uh, in regards to diversity, equity, inclusion kind of things. And they participated with the status quo and um, went about uh, engaging in white flight. So um, those are some things I think in the broader uh, reality of evangelicalism. We saw this uh, with uh, evangelical support of the launch of the war on drugs and the continued support of evangelicals uh, for very punitive legislation in regards to criminal justice, three strikes you're out, um, zero tolerance, um, the support for the death penalty. Um, all of those uh, things are things that white evangelicals in particular are most supportive of, of any demographic in the country. Um, and so we had, that has historically been true and remains true. Um, and so we see kind of those kind of things and a lot of evangelicalism, I would say, point people to the book, Jesus and John Wayne, if you're really wanting to get after this. Um, but I would say it really has eroded into, um, something that's much more concerned with culture wars than it is reflecting the cruciform love of Christ uh, that we see exemplified for us in scripture and that we're commissioned to kind of embody as the hands and feet of Christ in the world today. 
Kurt, I would love yeah. you to jump in here and I'd love for somebody to keep, if they can fill out something a bit of like, what, what might be behind this? Like this, th we think about evangelicalism, you think in culture wars, it's like one of the first things that comes up and trying to get a better sense of why that is the case. What leads to that? Uh, but Kurt, take that, respond how you would like. Uh, so I'll start with a brief reflection on the covenant and I'll broaden it out to evangelicalism. Um, you know, for much of the history of the covenant denomination, um, depending upon who you read, people said all sorts of things about the covenant. Uh, they're too liberal, they're too conservative, they're too this, they're too that. We were kind of unknown, uh, and or I should say little understood, largely because we existed within an ethnic envelope that most historians and, and cultural critics didn't understand. But if you look earlier on in the 20th century, there's all sorts of examples of how uh, the covenant was certainly anything but stereotypically evangelical. Uh, throughout the 1930s and 40s, most of the people who were in the covenant worked in the trades. We were not rich people, right? Uh, and so we tended to identify with tradespeople and unions. Um, uh, in, in large measure also at the time of World War II, uh, there were several uh, fairly well-known conscious objectors, conscientious objectors in World War II in the covenant, which was a real no-no at that time if you were going to be a Christian nationalist. Uh, but there were some covenant uh, 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 men who did this, right, who, who, who actually became that way, and they used the tradition of the covenant to justify uh, uh, their pacifism, yes, uh, there were some, uh, there's a, stra a strand of that in our history. Um, uh, there's another, another book to throw out there uh, called The Missing Peace, P-E-A-C-E, -E, which is about nonviolent histories in American life, in, American, in the American church. So there's all sorts of examples about how the covenant didn't quite fit. Uh, that being said, I don't think that any critic or commentator on American evangelicalism would make any mistake today saying that the covenant is evangelical. Um, I think starting in the 1960s and progressing into the present, the covenant has been, and this is a term that I use, that's a dumb term, but I like it, uh, it has, has been evangelicalized, right? Uh, not evangelized, but has been evangelicalized. I think in large measure, uh, many, many of the non-credal uh, uh, aspects of what it really means to be a covenanter historically and theologically uh, have, have truly been lost uh, and so deeply misunderstood that, that um, now we're just sort of a branch of American evangelicalism. And then people are really surprised when people say things like, why do we do it that way? Look at the way we've done it in the past. So, so I do think that there's a, a, there's a, a real identity question in terms of the way that we relate to dominant American evangelicalism based on our ethnic, theological, and cultural past. Yeah, yeah. For the, for the times when the covenant has distinguished itself from trends in evangelicalism, and it's done so by drawing from its own tradition. What was it about that tradition that's allowed it to do so? I'll, I'll raise this one, and, and, and Dominique, you can, uh, th this one is controversial, uh, and, and it's one that would be super healthy for a, an engaged open dialogue. Uh, but it had to do with uh, uh, the planting of Oakdale Covenant Church on Chicago's south side, uh, late 60s, early 70s, right? Um, you know, I've been in several conversations about this. I, I wrote a dissertation chapter on it. And, um, you know, depending upon who you ask, the planting of what became an, an, an African-American church, a Black church on Chicago's South Side was a, you know, a, a clear commitment to justice. 
and others, uh, including uh, a prominent minister at Oakdale, uh, actually used the term and said it was just a, a bone thrown to Southside Blacks thinking they'd never actually make it. And so the, the way that we think about the nature of our ministry varies depending upon the people that you ask about interpreting that history. But I do know that for those, that small number of people who decided to create a multicultural church that did transition into a Black church by the end of the 1960s, they used our tradition to do it. One of them said, how is it that we can talk to our missionaries who are ministering to people of different races all over the world and then say that we won't integrate with them here in the United States? How can we possibly do that? Uh, others would say that our immigrant heritage says that we're supposed to, we, we were the stranger and we were welcomed in. So we need to make sure that we're welcoming the people that are coming into this part of the country now in ways that haven't in the past. So your tradition can be marshaled and used uh, uh, in different ways, depending upon the person making the argument. My family's roots in the covenant started in Oakdale. And so they were there as this story evolved and Oakdale's story shows the best and the worst of the covenant. Um, and um, yeah, I think in the covenant, one of the things that I think has been helpful uh, coming out of the pietistic tradition of uh, reading scripture in community and small conventicles, um, there was always an intentionality of making that community of reading scripture diverse. And through that diversity, there was this kind of stretching and growing and iron, iron sharpening iron of one another that allowed us to have a more expansive understanding of the gospel and what uh, the spirit might be compelling us into as a new manifestation of faith in the midst of pre-existing status quos. And so I think that's been something that's been, uh, when the covenant's gotten it right, the covenant has remained true to that conviction that we really are better together and that we need each other to authentically be the interconnected body of Christ. And that means that we have to be intentional about our posture towards those who are different and realize that in the midst of their difference and in the midst of their lived experience, they actually have something to offer us as a collective that could uh, engender a greater faithfulness. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. I think when the covenant is at its very best is when two people who fundamentally disagree remain in communion with one another. Um, and our church past is filled with it. Um, if you think we differ about how we read the Bible today, whether it be on sexuality or something else, uh, think a century ago in the 1930s, um, when, when, when there were heresy trials based on how we interpret parts of scripture. Um, think about the question of baptism, uh, when we actually agreed in a way that is absolutely theologically and ecclesially unprecedented to say that those who affirm infant baptism and those who affirm believer's baptism will stay in 100% communion with one another in diversity of theological approach. Uh, the covenant is at its best when two people who fundamentally disagree remain in communion with one another. And, and, and that aspect, for, forgive this brief uh, story from my family's lore, but my dad grew up in Arlington, Massachusetts. And uh, uh, there's still the old, uh, uh, there was an old movie theater, the Regent Theater downtown in Arlington. Uh, and uh, back in those days, if you were covenant, you weren't allowed to go to the movies. 
but my dad's friend gave him a nickel and, and, and brought him into the, the double feature on a Saturday. And, and my aunt Dolores, his older sister, uh, came home and, and told, told their mom, told on him. Um, and reportedly, she looked at my grandfather and said, um, I'm going down there to get him. And so she walked up to the ticket booth and the guy said, you need a ticket to come in. And she said, my son is in there with the devil and I'm going in to get him out. Uh, and she walked right into the movie theater and she grabbed him by the ear and pulled him out of the theater. And then she walked around the corner and bought him an ice cream cone. And when we asked, right, uh, when we asked later, many, many years later in life, we said, if he'd just been something so bad, um, why, why did you go buy him an ice cream cone? And she said, well, it's not bad to go to the movies. It's just not the best way to, to live your life, right? Uh, and so there, there's this attitude that 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 uh, we we don't throw people out. We don't judge people. We don't we don't uh, uh, we we don't engage in hard and fast black and white. But we seek to be a disciple of Christ and to live in the way that God, that Christ invites us to live. Um, and I think that is the the strongest aspect of of what it means to be covenant. Remaining in communion matters. I want to I want to put a question on this topic to both of you. What if someone says the objection? Well, you know what? This tradition just looks like one that's just ripe for making compromises and not being able to to get stuff done and to take up and uh, and to and to be out there in the world uh, arguing on behalf of things. Um, what do you What do you say to those kind of things? So, this is a this is a nuanced conversation for sure for me because I think that there is a certain time where you should break fellowship. That's just me personally. That doesn't have to be everybody's uh, belief, but I do think um, I think sometimes being in uh, relationship to an individual or an institution can be abusive. Um, and when it is abusive and it is something that is drawing you away from God and closing you to the revelation of scripture, then I think it's time for you to do a deep assessment as to has the spirit actually called you there or are you just staying there out of comfort or some other thing? Um, so I don't think that you remain in communion at all costs. Um, that said, I also don't think that you leave a relationship or a congregation just because the pastor preaches and pushes you in a way that feels uncomfortable, or your congregation decides to start singing music from a culture, tradition, or a language that feels uncomfortable for you. I really do believe that um, diversity is a revelatory gift from God that shows us more of who God is and how God is at work in the world. I believe that so much of evangelicalism has been rooted in a homogeneity that diversity becomes like in many institutions, either it's something that we're afraid of or a checklist that we just want to like check off, but we don't authentically see it as something that enriches our lives and our faith and our understanding of who God is and what God has commissioned us to be about in the world. Um, so I would say for me, um, in the midst of political differences, in the midst of, um, I would even say, um, theological differences. Um, I think it's important for us to understand 
that we are called to unity in the midst of our diversity, not unity at the sake of our diversity. And I think that's one of the fundamental ways that we've misread scripture, that we thought to be unified in Christ means that we have to agree on everything and be on the exact same accord all the time. That's just not realistic. And it's not something that we see as a revelation throughout scripture. There's constantly churches and leaders throughout the text who are disagreeing and are contending with one another with uh, the love of Christ, uh, remaining in community and on common mission with each other in the midst of the disagreements. And I think we we need to hearken back to that time as the body uh, to bear a compelling witness to a divided world who wants to know that just because we disagree doesn't mean that we can't remain in fellowship. Appreciate that, Pastor Dominique. There's something very strong about even like even the staying together in the midst of disagreement has its own prophetic witness to it. Yeah, forgive this brief theological and ecclesial excursus, but but you know it, traditionally in the in, in the covenant church, uh, there's uh, an infant and a believer's Baptist uh, arm uh, within the church from the beginning, from the 19th century. Um, and so the covenant tried to mediate here. And so uh, in the 1950s, they came up with a statement that said, you can baptize babies and you can baptize adults. We just don't rebaptize anybody, right? Because that's like a total slap in the face to, 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 a, to a, 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 a person who believes in uh, infant baptism. Well, in the 90s, they took that out. Uh, so in the covenant now, you're happy to rebaptize people. And uh, I was in the middle of graduate school. I was Mr. Young Theologian, and I was ticked off, right? Uh, and I had a conversation with Bob Dvorak in the lobby at an annual meeting. Uh, and he said, Kurt, let me tell you what affected my thinking on this. He said, I have a young woman who grew up uh, Roman Catholic in Latin America. And um, the church was actually an instrument of peril in her life. And yes, she was baptized as a baby, but the instrument of her family and the life of the church is when she was a small child um, was deeply destructive to her personally and emotionally and theologically and religiously. And she found Christ and she asked to be baptized. And what am I supposed to say? No, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, uh, she finds new life in Christ and wants to let the world know about her conversion. And so... So uh, uh, the covenant has figured out a way on important things uh, to stay together. I do think there's room uh, in our covenant life for um, the genuinely prophetic. Uh, we can sometimes anesthetize things about, uh, you know, baptism and things like that. But, but we have, um, you know, a, a very strong tradition of Christian nationalism, of white supremacy in the covenant. Um, of, of, of a certain way of looking at what it means to be a Christian that, that is not consistent with the gospel witness. And we get opportunities to name it and to confess it and to stay in communion with one another as we learn uh, better how to be the body of Christ. So, so you know, uh, I, I do think Dominique is exactly right. There are times when for your own well-being, it, it's time to go. Uh, but But rarely in covenant life has somebody issued and said, you're out and you're in. It was David Nival who said, uh, the covenant church is small enough to include only those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and also big enough to make sure that anyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord is welcome.
I am so grateful for, for what you all have shared. I am seeing some of the questions roll in. Let me uh, hand things over to uh, to Kristen Wong. Thank you both so much. It's been such an enlightening evening already. Um, I'll start off with a question that kind of builds on what Scott just asked both of you, um, but pushes a little bit further. So on the podcast, Kurt had mentioned that the ECC is a denomination of raging moderates, which is such a fun phrase, but finding the middle ground tends to benefit those in power. Um, so how do you reconcile the ECC as being you know, a middle ground kind of a domination, but still being on the side of justice, especially for the poor and oppressed? So I'll say, you know, one of the things about the covenant that is beautiful and discouraging is that um, what the covenant looks like is very depending on which congregation you walk into. Um, and so there are some covenanters, covenant churches that are exactly what um, Kirk describes. And then there are some covenant churches that are leading the way within um, our country around racial justice, uh, you know, ecological, all these different manifestations. Like you can't go to a justice conference in North America and not see at least three covenanters as headlines at that conference. So there's clearly something that the covenant is doing and an element of the covenant that is prophetically committed to being repairs of the breach, uh, to quote Isaiah 58, and really living into the biblical commission to really make God's name known and love shown throughout the world in prophetic and countercultural ways. Um, is that a, is there enough of the covenant that's committed to that? No, we're constantly growing. Uh, we're constantly growing that. And I think we're speaking back to it. Um, my former boss, Cecilia Williams, used to say, uh, our call as leaders in the covenant is to really help meet those who say, help my unbelief. And she would call it like the meaty middle. And there are a lot of people who I think who are open, but they've not been properly discipled to understand justice as a core component of the gospel and not an optional add-on to it. And so I think what we're doing um, in the covenant is trying to continue to equip and resource our people to understand the biblical mandate and the tangible outcome of pursuing a right relationship with God and neighbor and not just God or neighbor, but it's the both and the cross has two dimensions. Yeah, and I and I, I guess to, to chime in there, I would say, yes, that is absolutely true. Uh, that there are uh, contemporary leaders on questions of justice uh, in the covenant. But there were in the 1930s and 40s too, right? Uh, there was a huge controversy in the 1930s because uh, a faculty member at North Park Seminary assigned E. Stanley Jones, Christ of the Indian Road, uh, which talked about finding Jesus in an Indian ashram. Um, uh, and, and this was absolute no-no in terms of the emerging questions over diversity when it came to ecumenism. Uh, and yet faculty members at North Park Seminary were, were actively talking about global uh, religious and spiritual ecumenism uh, long before most people in any evangelical circle were doing that. Um, at the same time, there was a strong commitment to issues of justice uh, uh, in, in the North Park Seminary curriculum early on in the 1950s. Uh, and 60s with what they were reading. Uh, and, and also Dominique did share the story of, uh, of Doug Cedarleaf uh, and some others. And there's some other, you know, uh, uh, many stories of, 
of how it was that there's this, uh, I like his the title of his book, A Subversive Witness, that was not the dominant foot forward of American evangelicalism, but that finds a strong expression uh, in the covenant church for a long time. Shifting a little bit, um, Kurt, you mentioned uh, initially that you no longer consider yourself an evangelical. Um, and someone wanted to ask, um, you still consider yourself Christian. Um, you don't really have a church home. Where do you see yourself fitting in? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, uh, we, we attend church, um, a, a really small multi-ethnic church in downtown Chicago, um, and so I'm, I'm uh, 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 remaining uh, tied uh, in, into an ecclesial context in some ways, rather loosely. Um, uh, I'll tell you, just to be completely and totally transparent, the fact that. 81% of those who voted for Donald Trump in the last presidential election identify as evangelical. Uh, how can that not be the clarion call for us to examine what in the world happened, right? I mean, you know, the, the good news of Christ reduced to, um, uh, reduced to an understanding, a particularized understanding of, of what it means to be a Christian in the world. And, uh, and I'll just be honest with you and say that the most wonderful people I know uh, I, I, I encounter in church and the very worst possible people I could possibly imagine I encounter in church. Uh, and it's so complicated for me. So I, I don't, I don't have a uh, I don't. I don't attempt. Uh, I'm not attempting to be a model for anyone. I'm. I'm really now in my mid fifties, exploring uh, just how it is that I'm supposed to think about um, uh, uh, the church and the world and the nature of the church. And I don't have any clear answers to it. I'm. I'm. I'm struggling. I'm wrestling. I'm reading. I'm. I'm praying. I'm thinking. Can I say something real quick about that? I think you know. I think we need to. We. I think we need to frankly sit with how fear based evangelicalism is today um, and how fear mongering has been used as a political and ideology ideological um, tactic to compel evangelicals to engage in activism and not activism in the way that we usually think about it from a justice sense but activism that's anti-justice, anti that's anti-anti-racism, activism that's rooted in misogyny and patriarchy and all these different things. Uh, and I think we need to take seriously um, the tactic of fear and why it's so effective within the evangelical culture. Like why, when there are explicit commissions in scripture, you know, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Like when there are explicit articulations that this is not who God created us to be and how we're supposed to function, why that's such a powerful tool within the evangelical mind and movement. I think we really have to grapple with that um, and start to parse that out. It's funny, I had a faculty member in graduate school say to me, my, my father-in-law was carting me around to a series of Promise Keepers conferences in the, in the 90s. And uh, and um, uh, in reflecting on one of these conversations with one of my faculty members, she said, and I'll never forget it. She looked. She she herself was a was a secular Jewish woman, uh, and she said, "Why is it that evangelicals are so afraid that they're going to do something wrong? <laughs> Just lighten up, you know." <laughs> there was a sense of that, and so I. And then with respect to politics 
And to the extent that our evangelical identity reflects an American nationalism, um, it's really easy these days to scare somebody about the nature and the future of the country. Uh, and, and, and once you accept that dominant nationalistic idea as a way of motivating what you think about, uh, about Jesus, uh, you know, suddenly it's, it's very easy to make someone afraid of immigrants or afraid of all sorts of different thinking and people uh, because that nationalistic identity is foremost in your mind. If evangelicalism has a hope uh, 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 to cling to the edges of it, um, it's for covenanters to continue to speak into it to refuse to allow the idols of the age to dominate what it means to say that you're a Christ follower and to authentically uh, recognize the truth of the gospel message while at the same time emphasizing diversity and justice and community through distinction and, 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 and division and disagreement, right? Um, you can actually remain in communion with someone that you don't really like very much. Uh, uh, our culture doesn't let you do that anymore. Um, our church communities tend to whittle themselves down further and further with more and more distinctions, throwing people out. And, and uh, it seems to me the covenant has a chance to speak into what it really means to be an authentic Christian today. Thanks for listening to the Theology Lab podcast. You can learn more about Theology Lab and check out the current offerings at highrock.org slash theologylab.